delusion that makes you think that those closest to you have been replaced by robots and clones, and did a ghostly, murderous black dog once stalk the halls of a British prison today on Dead Rabbit Radio. Welcome back to another episode of Dead Rabbit Radio. I'm your host, Jason Carpenter. I'm having a great day. I hope you're having a great day, too. It is the beginning of September, which means one thing. It's almost October. October not only is my birth month, October 4th is my birthday. We'll do something special on that. That sounded kind of pathetic, but uh, anyways, um, it's October. So more importantly, no, my birthday is pretty important, but also equally important is Halloween. So we're going to have some cool stuff. I'm really looking forward to doing the Halloween stuff. I've always been, a, for whatever reason, a huge fan of Halloween episodes of otherwise normal television shows. And I've always thought it must be so cool for like the cast and the crew and the writers and all that stuff to be able to do something completely different once a year. Like, they, you know, you know, they can have that Christmas special and maybe Santa Claus might show up. But when Halloween comes around, you can actually have like an otherwise normal sitcom with paranormal activity. And I remember the, the sitcom Martin on Fox did a ghost episode where there was a ghost of a white man. Okay, so Martin was a comedy on Fox starring Martin Lawrence. And it had four main primary characters. They were all black. And I remember he, I was watching it. I must have been around 14 or 15. And it had this weird racial component because there's basically like this... It's this sitcom with, like, they're just, like, partying and dancing and dating and stuff like that. And then there's, like, this this unholy white man, like, stalking them in their house. Like, where they have all this fun. And I remember thinking, this is kind of an odd... Why don't they just have Martin play a funny ghost? Why do they have this creepy ghost in there? And I remember watching it, and the episode ends, if I remember correctly. The episode ends. I remember being really creeped out by this, really scared by this. Martin and Gina, his girlfriend, are laying down on the couch and they fall asleep. And then walking behind the couch appears the apparition of this old white dude. And he begins to go to choke them to death. And then he changes his mind and fades away. Now, I have a... I already have issues with, like, sleeping in public. I also have an issue with couches in the middle of living rooms. To me, couches should always be against a wall... Because I don't want anyone hiding behind my couch. It has nothing to do with any sort of feng shui or any sort of like structural integrity to the couch. A couch should be pressed against the wall. So when I walk into a room, I know for a fact that there is nobody hiding behind it. Part of me thinks that that fear of couches in, in the middle of a living room may be because of that episode. I'm not saying 100%. I've lived in houses where couches have been in the living room, and I don't remember being particularly creeped out. But I've always been creeped out of the idea of, like, sitting on a couch and someone, like, slowly creeping up behind you, and they're, like, putting their hands on the top of the couch, but you don't notice, and then they're, like, slowly rising up above you. Creepy. But so, again, I've always been fascinated by Halloween episodes of shows. I think that's always a fun A fun little thing. And so we're going to be doing our own version of that. We're going to be doing some cool stuff rolling out in October, and I'll tell you more about that as we move forward. Let's go ahead and get on with the episode. We have some interesting stories for you today. We're going to go ahead and start with our first story, which is, it's just weird. I think the way the human brain works is is very weird. It's a very complicated machine, and anything that's complicated, a little thing can cause some big problems. 
Now, there was a woman named Mary. I don't believe that's her real name. This is in, um, I found this link on Psychiatric Times, and it has everything sourced through there, but it's sourced to medical journals that you would actually have to go and, and get access to. There was no other links to this. but So there was a woman named Mary, and she believed that her nine-year-old daughter wasn't her daughter. And I'm not saying it's not biological that she didn't give birth to her, but that her true daughter was taken away and replaced with this clone, with this doppelganger. She would show up at her daughter's school sometime to pick up her daughter, believing her daughter was there. And when she saw this little girl, she would begin screaming, where's my daughter? Who has my daughter? Give me my daughter back. And the little nine-year-old girl would just kind of be stunned. School officials would be like, you know, what's going on? She believes that one time she was driving down the road and she saw her true daughter in a car with someone else. And when they noticed her seeing them, they took off. She would say that she would say that sometimes she would be talking to her real daughter, who would show up occasionally. And then when she would turn to talk to her face to face, she would believe not that she had been fooled, but that her real daughter was standing behind her just moments ago, but when she, as she was turning her head, her real daughter was taken away by somebody and immediately replaced with the doppelganger. And eventually, you know, obviously, social services gets involved with this because she's, she's making a scene at school. The little girl's being upset. The little girl said her response to all of this is, I love my mother except for when she doesn't believe I'm me. And they took the mother and they started to put her on medication and it wasn't working. They upped it. It wasn't working. They put her in therapy. That wasn't working. And eventually they did have to remove the daughter from the home because the threat of violence was too high. She was acting out. She truly didn't believe that this was her daughter. What she was diagnosed with was something known as Capgras uh, syndrome. Capgras delusion is what it is. And it's the inability to recognize people. Now, it's not like facial blindness. You can. There are people who have facial blindness. I personally feel I have a little bit of facial blindness, but it's only towards men, where I can see a woman, and I'm especially an attractive woman, but I can see a woman and I'll know, hey, I met her before, but I can walk past the same guy five times and go, hey, how are you doing? Like, I won't realize that I've talked to that stranger five times. It could just be that I'm not particularly paying attention to men, and I'm always paying attention to women, it could just be that I have other things on my mind. But facial blindness is where you look at someone and you don't know who they are. Your brain can't register their face. You don't recognize them at all. Capgras solution is something much, much different. You look at someone and you recognize them physically, but you don't recognize them emotionally. So you can look at your father and go, this person is 100% physically my father, but that's not my father. It's not as rare as we used to think it was. And what's interesting about it is we don't know what causes it or how it works. But there's been a lot of very interesting theories about it. And it has a lot of interesting, ugh, it has a lot of interesting parallels to folklore. So one of the, the big theories that has come out recently, and I thought this was fascinating, was that when there, there's two ways that we remember people. One is by looking at them. And the other one is our skin has an electrical reaction when we're around people that we know and have tight bonds with. And you can measure it. They actually have this device, this galvanic, galvanic nader. Um, I was reading about MIT had made one of these things. And it's a glove that will light up 
and it will light up whenever your skin becomes more conductive to electricity. And this, the glove that they made was kind of a basic thing. We could light up if you were basically, if you saw someone that you'd find attractive or famous, it would light up if you're reading an interesting passage in a book because your, your body's basically becoming this electrical battery. But we have a slider version of it, not so advanced where it's lighting up a bulb, where when you see somebody you know, you're unconsciously remembering the emotions that they've given you and, the, and the, their history, their emotional history. So if I can look at my best friend and, and say, oh, I know her, and then I can also remembering all those good times we spent together, my skin's registering that. And both of those work to create memories. It's not just about the brain. It's about the chemical reaction, the electrical reaction in your body, which is fascinating because, again, we think all of this stuff is brain-related. So one of the theories is that what Capgras delusion is is a breakdown between the brain and the basically the skin. There's a breakdown between that. So you're looking at someone and you remember all of the physical memories, but you remember none of the emotional memories. It's like a blank slate. Which, which is terrifying. If you turned around and saw someone that you knew for the past 20 years and you looked and you had no emotional connection to them whatsoever, you're not getting any sort of read off of them. You don't remember ever sharing any emotional time with this person, but they look exactly like that person. You, you would think this person's a clone. This person's a robot. There, you can't really fault if you have if you don't have access to that information. You you can't really fault someone for believing that. There's all sorts of theories on what it causes this. It normally affects people with um, schizophrenia, but it also head injuries can do it. Like you can get hit in the head so hard that you develop this delusion, and it usually happens with loved ones. It's not so much just people walking down the street. It's normally people that you do have an emotional connection with. So again, I think that's why the skin. The skin electrical impulses plays a big part into it. It's, and it usually happens to women. It's not very common among men. It's not, it used to be considered a female disease, and, but it just now they just said it's more likely to happen with women. So I don't know. Maybe that has to do with the emotional context of it as well. Maybe if men aren't tying so much emotion into relationships, who knows? I think the idea itself is is what what's creepy about it is that your brain can trick you into believing something that is not true your brain can tell you can be, you can be looking and gaining information and, and instead of this little conscience on your shoulder your brain itself is going that's not her that's not her creepy and you know the way that this ties into folklore is you you know there's always been stories about changelings about if, um, you know, people's babies being taken away at night and being replaced by another baby. And, and the goal is, is that you raise this changeling instead of the baby. Your baby's been taken away to fairyland and you're raising a fake baby. And in those old legends, the way to get your original baby back sometimes is to beat the crap out of the fake baby. There was one old legend where the woman was instructed to put the fake baby into the oven and then her real child returned. So, so you have to wonder, were some of these delusions going on back then? And they didn't know what they were. They had no idea how to explain something like this because it's fairly, you know, you wouldn't be able to be like, well, no, it's the way that your skin conducts electricity. They didn't even know what electricity was. And you have to wonder how many times 
things, just weird incidences happened throughout history where someone's come home. It's very sudden. You can come home from work and you see your wife and she's not your wife. Nowadays, we have testing and, and protocol and the wife would be like, yeah, of course I'm your wife. And after about a week of him insisting he's not your wife, she's not your wife. You would go to a medical professional or the law enforcement or whatever. But, you know, 100, 200 years ago, you'd maybe get a priest involved. And even farther back than that, a thousand years ago, you would probably just wait it out until he chopped you up with an axe. And why does he care? You're not really his wife. It's creepy. And that person would then go on the rest of their lives going, well, I wonder where my real wife went. As there's like a body rotting in their garden. Just go about your business. I hope my real wife comes home soon. Hey, Johnny. Yeah, you got my shoes ready? Oh. Where's Johnny? <laughs> I, I'm glad that became like a twist ending to like a serial killer running through town with an axe in old England. But that's what it would do. Anyone you had an emotional connection with, eventually you that same system may develop. Because eventually you go into town and maybe you don't recognize anybody. They've all been taken by clones. Creepy. Human brain is a very advanced machine, but very tricky machine as well. Hey ghouls and guys, do you like to get spooky and stay spooky? Then check out our podcast, The Golden Ghouls. Each week we talk about our favorite things, ghosts and the paranormal. Sound like a good time? Then give us a listen on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Goodbye. So we're going to go ahead and move on to our next story. This story it really creeped me out when I heard about it. So, you know, the thing about prison is, on the one hand, prison is, is just another place to live. You're, you do meet a bunch of scummy people in there, so that's not good. I mean, the chances of me running into a child-molesting cannibal out here is almost zero, but in prison, those chances go considerably up. There are people, a lot of people in prison for, you know, minor crimes, theft, drug possession. I had a friend who was in prison. I, I think it was tax evasion or something like that. And embezzlement is what he went in for. He's a nice guy. So you get, you get a weird mix. But what creeps me out about prison is you can't go anywhere. And you're like, obviously, Jason, that's the point of a prison. But if something goes wrong, you're stuck. Now, you know, I... Like I said, I finished Twin Peaks the other day. There was a scene early on, I think it was episode three of Twin Peaks. There was a man played by Matthew Lillard, oddly enough. There's a lot of cameos in that movie, that or that television show that I didn't expect. But so Matthew Lillard's sitting in a jail cell, crying, just sobbing. And the camera pans over slowly, real slowly, because David Lynch loves to take his time. And the camera pans over real slowly until it goes a couple cells down and there's a hobo painted all black his clothes are pitch black the only thing that is, is visible really is his eyes and he's staring right at the camera and that goes on uncomfortably long and then he turns into a ghost face and starts floating around the cell that scene chilled me to the bone and when you listen to me describe it you're like oh it's kind of ridiculous but it creeped me out because the thing is is that if you're in a prison and there's something like that you're stuck like, I think the worst thing to be would be to be trapped in a haunted prison. I guess there's probably worse things that can happen in prison, but you're in prison and there's a ghost a couple cells down. Like, here, I can, like, leave or I can, like, I don't know, keep the lights on or something. But if you're in a cell and there's, like, a, a monster next to you, there is another jail monster later on in Twin Peaks. That was equally terrifying. He's ripping his face off and yelling the whole time. But, yeah, you're stuck. So when I came across the story of 
the Black Dog of Newgate, I was like, oh, this is like a great combination of a couple of my fears. I'm not a huge fan of dogs either, but I've gotten better with that. So this story is an old English legend. When people say that they still see the Black Dog of Newgate today, still where that prison is. So the way that the story goes is this. Back during the reign of King Henry III, so we're in England, there was a horrible famine going on. And at the same time, there was this scholar who was accused of being a sorcerer. So he was arrested, and they take him and they throw him into Newgate Prison. And because this famine is going on, the people outside the prison are having a hard time finding food. The last thing that the community, that the society at large is going to worry about is feeding the inmates. So the inmates become cannibals because they're just, you know, they're just crazy because they need their food. Another bad reason to go to prison. Everyone might be a cannibal. So this, this scholar is thrown in and almost immediately he's descended upon by other inmates and they just tear him to shreds and eat him. And they get their little meal for the day. Maybe they save some. Maybe they smoke a little bit of them, make some jerky. But what happens is a couple nights later, it, inmates begin to complain that there is a giant black dog stalking the holes in between the cells. And of course, you know, it's creepy. You're trapped in there. You're a cannibal. You're starving. It's pitch black and super hot in there. Prison's just sucking general. And now there's this giant dog walking around your cell. And what happens is one night the dog gets into the cell of one of the inmates and just eats him, shreds him. And everyone's just like, oh my God. It's like, oh, eats him. And then a couple nights later, it's walking through the cells again, snarling, big and black. Blood still dripping off of its fangs from its last meal. And it breaks into another cell. Eats him up. And this continues. And what happens is they start to put together that he's eating everyone who ate the sorcerer. So it's obviously, if you had taken a bite of this dude, if you, someone's like, hey man, you want a little bit of this scholar? No, I'm good. The dog wasn't going to eat you. But if someone's like, hey man, you want a, you want a toe? Oh yeah, dude, I'm so hungry. I'll totally eat that dude's ugly old dirty toe. How dirty was humans back then? They'd be the dirtiest cannibals ever. Anyways, like if I was going to cannibalize someone, I would want them to like wash them at least, put a little deodorant on them. Anyway, so the dog's walking and it's eating and eventually like it's this countdown clock. So if you haven't been eaten yet and you know you ate the sorcerer, you're like, dude, we got to get out of here. So there's this huge prison break. A bunch of guards are killed. The inmates run out. The dog chases them out. And so even though the inmates get out to freedom, they're out of the prison. They're out of Newgate. They're out of this absolute hellhole. The prison itself was called a prototype of hell. It was just a terrible place to be. They're out into the free English countryside. Yes, there's a famine going on, but at least they don't have to worry about being devoured in their cell by this big black dog. But it continues to stalk them and take them out one by one until finally the last person who ate that sorcerer is killed somewhere in the middle of the night in some lonely English field. This black dog is standing over the last man who took the sorcerer's life and just was eating his guts, killed him, devoured him, got his vengeance, and then left. Now, what's interesting is this was a very popular legend. It was turned into a series of books 
you know, because it, it ties into everything that we're scared of. We're scared of the unknown. We're scared of the evil in humanity. We're scared in retribution. We also like the idea of people who do evil acts are eventually punished for them. The book itself that's based on this is told by a narrator. And the book itself is interesting because it's very clickbaity. So it's interesting. So the book itself says the story that you just read is 100% fake. And the narrator of the story of the Black Dog in Newgate Prison is going, the only black dog I know of is the one that stands at limbo. The one that sits there and kills the condemned prisoners. The ones that when you were imprisoned in life, when you go to limbo, your brains are dashed out from all of your horrible things that you've done. Now, right there you'd go, well, that's kind of clickbaity. It's kind of clickbaity. Like, I'm reading this whole book. I'm reading this wood carving book. So I'm getting like splinters because I know that's not what a wood carving is. But, you know, I'm looking at this book that has pictures of made from wood carvings. And you get to the end and you're like, what? It's all fake. That's lame. But this legend is actually older than the book. So, it, it, I mean, it could be one of those stories that's completely made up. It's most likely not 100% factually true. But I, I think there's this, it does play into a lot of those things that we find creepy. They, and they say the legend even predates the book. This idea of prisoners committing some sort of atrocity against a man and then his vengeful spirit coming back. Nowadays people go, the ghost still stalks the prison and you can look up sometimes and see the shape moving and all that stuff. That's, I think that's tourist trappy stuff. But I think the tr real truth might lay somewhere in between. The real truth of a man being wronged in prison and, and taking vengeance against his captors. And then the other side of the truth, a man being killed in prison and bringing about the form of this black dog to take vengeance on his, on his enemies. I think the real truth probably lays somewhere in between there. I'm not the type of person to say it's 100% impossible for someone to conjure up some sort of creature to take vengeance on their enemies. I will say I think it's incredibly unlikely. I think that it's probably not super common, but I'm also not going to say it's absolutely impossible because I think there's a lot of stuff that can happen. I think this story itself is very entertaining. I wouldn't put money on it. That was true. And I'm not buying a plane ticket to go out to England to see a big black blur standing on top of a prison. But if anyone ever asks me, hey, do you know any creepy stories about you know, black dogs, I tell them this one. And, you know, that's one thing. I wanted to wrap the episode up with this. I said during my episode about Ted Bundy's ghost, I was like, stuff needs to be better sourced. This is completely ridiculous and all that stuff. There's a, and and I, I think I need to clarify something. There's a difference between an interesting ghost story, a creepy ghost story, and a story that purports itself to be true. When someone tells me a creepy ghost story... They're not trying to convince me that ghosts exist, generally. They're trying to scare me. And that's totally fine. That's a form of entertainment. This story, the Newgate story, is a story that's supposed to be a morality tale. There's nothing wrong with it. I'm not going, what, what cell was he in? What's the name of the scholar? Because that's not the point of the story. The Psychology Today article, unless, I mean, I read it multiple times, unless they were trying to be tongue-in-cheek, I didn't pick up on it. And the person who wrote the article has written books about ghosts and crime scenes and stuff like that. The Psychology Today article was trying to be more factual. There, there wasn't really a creepy ghost story. It was trying to say Ted Bundy is floating around here. And you can call it, you know, I think the headline was, Is Ted Bundy's Ghost Still Haunting Us? That actually might have been my headline. But you know what I mean? Like, you can crib it differently. 
So I love creepy ghost stories, but if you want me to believe in ghosts, you want me to believe in UFOs, you're going to have to source it. And I think maybe that distinction was last in that last episode, so I wanted to clarify that. I don't have a problem with creepy ghost stories, but if you want people to believe in this stuff, source them. This story is just to creep us out. It's just to teach us a lesson. And hopefully, hopefully, it teaches a lesson that you shouldn't eat people who know more than you do. Don't eat scholars. If you're going to eat someone, eat like a hobo. Or eat like, I don't know, someone who had like barely passed math. I don't know. That's not good because I barely passed math. DeadRabbitRadio at gmail.com is going to be your email address. You can hit us up at facebook.com slash deadrabbitradio. Our Twitter account is at Jason O. Carpenter. Dead Rabbit Radio is the daily paranormal conspiracy and true crime podcast. You don't have to listen to it every day, but I'm glad you listened to it today. Have a great one, guys.